Welcome to episode 19 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Beginning with the latest news, Allied Universal has received acceptances of 79.09% for the American company's cash off of 245 pence per share in G4S PLC made by Atlas UK Bidco Limited. This final offer from Allied Universal for the global security giant has become unconditional as to acceptances. The directors of British multinational security services company G4S PLC unanimously recommend that those G4S shareholders who have not already done so should now accept the final Allied Universal offer for the business. That final offer will remain open for acceptance until further notice. At least 14 days notice will be given through an announcement before the final Allied Universal offer is then closed. Allied Bidco has obtained substantially all of the required antitrust and regulatory approvals and foreign direct investment clearances in applicable jurisdictions and confirmed that if any conditions remain outstanding on the final date under the code by which the final Allied Universal offer must become wholly unconditional or otherwise lapse, it intends to waive such conditions. Further, Allied Bidco expects that the final Allied Universal offer will become wholly unconditional on Tuesday the 6th of April. Commenting on this major news, John Connolly, chairman of the G4S board, stated, We are pleased that a very large proportion of shareholders have accepted Allied Universal's final offer. The G4S board believes that the offer provides shareholders with an attractive premium, while also securing the future success of G4S for its employees, customers, pension scheme members and other stakeholders. He went on to add, I would like to thank Ashley Almanza, the CEO of G4S, and his team, together with all of our employees, for the successful transformation of G4S in recent years. That transformation has made this transaction possible. I'd also like to thank my fellow G4S board members for their excellent work. And finally, I'd like to thank all of our shareholders for their strong support. Ashley Almanza responded, the combination of G4S and Allied Universal creates the global leader in security with revenues of over $18 billion, underpinned by industry-leading talent and expertise and unmatched market coverage. This unique combination will offer customers exceptional service and provides employees with an exciting future. I would like to thank the board and our shareholders for their support and colleagues across G4S for their outstanding contribution to the successful repositioning of the business that has made this transaction possible. My team and I look forward to working with Allied Universal to support a successful integration of the two companies. Formerly Group 4 Securicore, G4S is headquartered in London. The business was established back in 2004 when London-based Securicore amalgamated with Danish firm Group 4 Falk. Today, the company offers a range of specialist services, among them the supply of security personnel, monitoring equipment, response units and secure prisoner transportation. G4S also also works with numerous governments overseas to deliver bespoke security solutions. Measured in terms of revenue, G4S is the world's largest security company with operations in more than 90 countries. Upwards of 533,000 employees across the globe render the business the world's third largest private employer in fact, as well as the largest European and African private employer. Additionally, G4S is among the largest of those firms presently listed on the London Stock Exchange. The organisation has a primary listing on the London Stock Exchange and is also a constituent of the FTSE 250 index. At present, G4S delivers security services for over 40 embassies around the world, provides stewarding services at football stadiums and other venues, and also runs several British prisons. The company operates prisoner tagging schemes, assists within government communications headquarters, and also focuses on administrative roles for both the health and education sectors. For the last two decades, Allied Universal has provided unparalleled services, systems and solutions for businesses right across North America, Canada, and also other parts of South America. With a major span of regional offices, the company's national reach and local presence 
presence in the states covers the nation. Specifically, the business provides security guarding solutions, physical security, risk advisory and consulting services, and also integrated technology and security systems. Earlier this month, Allied Universal, which was founded in 2016 on the back of the merger of Allied Barton Security Services and Universal Services of America, completed the purchase of San Francisco-based security integration. The other company in the running to acquire G4S has been Canadian firm Garda World, which badges itself as the world's largest privately owned security services and cash services company. In February, the Montreal-based company took the decision to stay firm with its previously announced increased cash offer made through its wholly owned subsidiary Fleming Capital Securities Incorporated at 235 pence per share to acquire the entire issued and to-be-issued share capital of G4S PLC. As a result of that decision, Garda World's increased offer was final and wouldn't be subject to revision. That revised bid was up 24% from the company's previous 190 pence per share offer, which valued G4S at £3 billion. Allied Universal's triumph in the bidding process is construed by certain commentators to be somewhat awkward for the Conservative government. It means the latter will now have to re-evaluate and reassign its contract for security and management services at four major British prisons, which had already been awarded to G4S. Allied Universal has stated that it doesn't wish to continue with that particular contract. Fraser Sampson has been appointed as the government's independent biometrics and surveillance camera commissioner in a new role that combines the two part-time posts of the biometrics commissioner and the surveillance camera commissioner. The biometrics commissioner and surveillance camera commissioner roles were established by the Protection of Freedoms Act 2012, which introduced the regime to govern the retention and use by the police service of DNA samples, profiles and fingerprints. There's also a focus on promoting the appropriate overt use of surveillance camera systems by relevant authorities in England and Wales. Formerly an honorary professor and research fellow at Sheffield Hallam University, Sampson is a solicitor of the Senior Courts of England and Wales. He has previously served as CEO of the Police, Fire and Crime Commissioner in North Yorkshire between 2006 and 2019. Sampson was the CEO and General Counsel for the Police and Crime Commissioner in West Yorkshire and also Executive Director of the Civil Nuclear Police Authority. Prior to all of this, Sampson was a serving police officer for West Yorkshire Police and also the British Transport Police between 1982 and 1996. Taking up his new post on Monday the 1st of March, Sampson will now actively promote compliance with the surveillance camera code of practice and also concentrate on rules in relation to the police services use of DNA and fingerprints. Home Secretary Priti Patel commented, I'm pleased to appoint Fraser Sampson as the new biometrics and surveillance camera commissioner. It's absolutely vital that the government works to empower the police to use technology designed to keep the public safe while at the same time maintaining their trust. Fraser Sampson's extensive experience in law and policing makes him the right person to take up this role. Speaking about his new appointment, Sampson explained, I'm delighted to have been appointed to cover these two distinct but now increasingly overlapping roles. I look forward to working with all partners in what is now a fast-moving and challenging area of balancing the public interest and considerations with the rights of individuals. The recruitment campaign for the role was conducted in line with the government's Code for Public Appointments. Importantly, the statutory responsibilities and duties for both of the previously separate roles remain the same now that they're combined. The biometrics-focused element of the role is trained on keeping under review the retention and use by the police service of DNA samples, DNA profiles and fingerprints. There's also a requirement to decide on applications made by the police to retain DNA profiles and fingerprints under Section 63G of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984 and also review national security determinations which are either made or renewed by the police service in connection with the retention of DNA profiles and fingerprints. The statutory duties of the Surveillance Camera Commissioner are to encourage compliance with the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice, continually review and assess how it's working and also provide advice to government ministers on whether or not the document needs amendment. The Surveillance Camera Commissioner is responsible for providing advice on the effective, appropriate, proportionate and transparent use of surveillance camera systems and also on operational and technical standards. The role doesn't involve enforcing the surveillance camera code of practice, inspecting CCTV operators to check their compliance with the documents or providing advice in respect of covert surveillance operations. The CCT 
TV user group has welcomed Fraser Sampson's appointment. Peter Webster, director of the group, observed, We welcome the appointment of the new commissioner to oversee and promote compliance with the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice. Fraser comes to the office with excellent credentials, and we very much look forward to working with him in his new role to promote high standards in the use of CCTV surveillance for public safety and security. Ilka Dervish, vice chair of the CCTV user group, noted, The members of the CCTV user group welcome the appointment of Fraser Sampson as a clear confirmation that the Home Office continues to recognise the importance of public space CCTV systems in our communities. We're certain that Fraser's experience and expertise will be a valuable contribution to the continuing development of regulations, guidelines and standards, signposting a clear path towards more effective and professional use of video surveillance systems. The position of Surveillance Camera Commissioner had been vacant since the departure of Tony Porter last December. Porter held the office and successfully promoted the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice for seven years. The Code of Practice itself is based on a document originally produced by the CCTV user group, which was then adopted and developed by the first Surveillance Camera Commissioner, namely Andrew Renison. Before leaving office, Porter voiced his strong opinion that the government's decision to combine the two previously separate roles isn't the best way forward. You can read his exclusive article in the November 2020 edition of Security Matters. That feature can be found on pages 24 to 26. Porter also served as a guest on episode 11 of the Security Matters podcast. Our first guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Paul Barnard, a director at the Security Institute and the holder of a master's degree in criminology and policing from the University of Cambridge. During his time as a detective chief superintendent at the City of London Police, Paul established key relationships with senior policy advisers, briefing government ministers and working with Home Office officials. Throughout his 27-year career in the police service, he was also at the forefront of delivering new and proactive solutions to combat crime. In recent years, Paul has served as director of security and risk mitigation at Ward Security with active involvement in security risk assessment and management, as well as the design of effective client contingency planning. A chartered security professional, Paul is a much sought-after speaker on the global security stage and also a recognised expert in cybercrime strategy. Recently, I interviewed Paul to learn more about the Secure Futures programme organised by the Security Institute in partnership with the EY Foundation. Can you set the scene for us by outlining how the Secure Futures programme was realised, Paul? Yeah, sure thing. I think the story sort of goes back um, sort of about three years when I was at a um, step change summit at the London Stadium. And there's a bit of discussion on stage about diversion of kids from sort of trouble, etc. And I was looking around the room, it was quite obvious that, you know, we lacked young people in that room in professional positions, which was a bit of a concern. And I started asking around and there was there was some work underway, but not much. Nothing really sort of defined or specified. And I met Rick Moundfield, um, a bit of an idea of perhaps getting some kids to come to some of the big security events. And we sort of found we were going to start with school children. It's quite difficult to reach them. So we, we, we came across the volunteer police cadets and we started taking them to a lot of the shows with support from our friends at International Security Expos, you know, the security event and uh, IFSET Global and the CT events as well. So we had some great, great support, but it was always a matter of, well, what next? And I always felt that we really wanted to let kids know what security is actually about, actually define it for them, give them a chance to see underneath it in more depth. And, and that's where sort of the embers began, if you like, about how we would get there in the end. And it was a little while after that that I started thinking about perhaps we should set up our own sort of charitable foundation around this. But then obviously we decided to, to work it a different way. And from your perspective, what's the journey with this initiative been like to date? Well, from my perspective, it, it's been... It's been hard work, but it's been really rewarding. 
because we've had the attitude, we've had the drive from the Security Institute, drive from a number of our partners. And when we sort of launched this at our AGM in 2019, which was October, there was so much support um, in the audience. And then we started to get sponsors on board from the security sector. So that's what allowed us to build Secure Futures was getting engagement with like-minded people and like-minded companies so we could then sponsor each participant on the Secure Futures course. Why did you select the EY Foundation as your partner organisation, Paul? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. There are lots of different elements to this. So firstly, it was all about what reach did they have to enable us to reach children from disadvantaged backgrounds, aged 16 to 17, who are talented, but their family income being very poor, so less than £16,000 a year. Or, and or they want free school meals or eligible for them. That was sort of a really good principle to start with because we could tell from some of the courses we looked at that they'd done before, some of these kids were really talented, but it's very difficult for them to move on to the next level. And that, to us at the Security Institute, felt it was the right corporate social responsibility piece to do and to target individuals who we felt would have talent to work in the security sector, but they didn't need to know more about it. So... The EY Foundation have got nine regional hubs and they've got massive outreach into schools and colleges to find kids that are interested in programmes like this. And since we've been working with them, Brian, it's just been nothing but sensational. Nothing's too too difficult for them. And in fact, out of all the programmes they've ever run before with individual organisations, this is the first multi-employer course they've ever run. So for them, it's a lot of learning and it's brand new, as it is for us. But it's also prompted them to look at other similar partnerships, which is exciting for them. But also we know we've got a great template for the future as well. Now, you recently ran the first Secure Futures course, Paul. How did that go? Yeah, we we ran it early in February this year. And it's been just nothing short of amazing, to be honest. 27 young people participated. Obviously, because of the current pandemic, we had to do it all virtual, which was another challenge and never really sort of been done before, rather than face-to-face. We had 16 female, 11 male, and if you want sort of the BAME figures, it's about 90%, which is pretty sensational. And we had lots of multi-employers coming in to sort of talk to the kids. And we had a theme each day, like leadership, communication skills, self-reflection and teamwork. So each of those days was based on a theme. But they've also got to sort of work towards a certificate of recognition they get at the end, which is a very formal certificate called ILM. And that's fantastic because it's something for them to work towards and achieve. But actually, the input we're getting from people on the cyber security, from physical and technical and from personnel security has been nothing short of amazing. And finding people that can connect with them in terms of bringing alive schoolwork you're doing into the workplace. I'll give you an example if I may. So start talking about psychology of security, for instance, behavioural detection. This is one example. Straight away, we've got kids putting their hands up on the screen, talking about their knowledge of psychology and they never realised that it was a security element to it. Then talk about physics and maths and how that helps to design architecture, for instance, to prevent blast. That type of thing really started to switch them on. And it's provoked so many different discussions between them. 
The other thing they did during that course was a Dragon's Den exercise where we had a number of really terrific supporters as, as judges from across the security industry, such as Michelle Russell from the SIA, Rick Mountfield from uh, the Security Institute, as two examples. And it was just brilliant to, to see what the kids produced. The question we set them was, design a, an app if you want to, which would engage people your age with what types of careers there are in security and how they can achieve them, and also how security sees them, gets them safe. Now, they had about four, four and a half hours to design this, Brian, and didn't expect to see what I saw, if I'm honest, and I sat as a layperson watching what was going on with the, the judging and looking at what they were put together. It was amazing to see what they actually produced, live apps. That's what they produced in that time with different elements they captured all the things we taught them that week and they'd seen that week it was nothing sort of sort of sensational to the extent where some of the judges have said we need further conversations because some of this is adaptable it's the real world so it's promising start and you know that that's what i wanted it to be and what we've managed to get it to be and part two of the initial course is running in april what's that going to look like in terms of its content yeah, brilliant. So part two would normally butt straight after part one because of the pandemic. We're having to work it through the school holidays for the kids, which is when these programmes run, which you make that point quite clear. So in April, we are running from the 6th of April to the 9th. And on the 6th, we are going to the 7th and 8th, we are doing work experience, virtual work experience with our sponsors coming forward to give them an online version of what work experience they can, what their company does, what bits of the, how different things work in the company, for instance. We've got engagement from CPNI, engagement from government security. We've also got um, engagement from the City of London Police Cyber Griffin team. So, and, you know, one big name I can tell you is the sponsors, the Walt Disney Company, they've stepped forward and they're going to uh, produce, I know as they would do, a piece called How We Protect the Magic, which is sensational and will really open eyes as to the different elements of security that protect people and places. And on that Friday, they actually graduate, they get the graduation ceremony, and they put all that graduation ceremony together as well. And in the meantime, just before and after them, we're putting together different webinars and inviting them to different sessions where they can talk to the key adults in the security sector about their experiences so far. I should also add, Brian, that part two then allows them a 10-month mentoring experience. Um, we've got 27 mentors on one of them. And across the security sector, we had double the amount of mentors, three times the amount of kids for this course. And we're going to give them 10 months of free mentoring. And after that, the Security Institute is going to offer them all a year's free membership uh, to the Security Institute, again, to sort of give them that extra nudge and boost towards these potential careers that they see in front of them. So that's the, the element for part two, which extends for 10 months more. And finally, Paul, what are your hopes for the Secure Futures programme in times ahead? OK, we're in the middle of a, the most devastating things around our economy that I can remember in my lifetime called the pandemic and firstly the security sector we have to start thinking about strategically about how we will get people into our sector to work alongside us the traditional career paths we've chosen to take people from before with older people will still be there but probably not as much but I think it's imperative we take people who have got talent and we bring them in and we teach them 
people that want to be part of the security profession. And this is what Secure Futures gives us, the opportunity to do that. We've got 27 young kids there. We're going to divide them up into cohorts, smaller cohorts. They will become advisory groups for the security sector to start with. So they've actually, any one of the sponsors or any organisation can come to us and say, we'd love to, you know, some young people's views on this, that and the other. And we're going to give that opportunity to them as well. But I want to see more of these courses. I'm already in discussions with some other colleagues and other companies about setting up part two and some others as well. So we will run another one next year. And I'd like to see some longevity behind this. That depends on the funding because each kid that comes on the course, it's 1,500 quid. Now, you might think that's a lot of money, but I'd say this. A number of security companies out there and other people will happily go and spend money on a dinner, yeah, where you've got a big event on. It costs far more than that. You invest in here, in our future. Our future as an industry, you're investing in it. And there can be no better way of realising potential in people and, and talented individuals. So I would say to people, if you want to come forward and do it, uh, please email me, paul.barnard at security-institute.org, and we can talk it through with you. That £1,500 pays for... Then they get paid for two weeks for being on the course. EY Foundation will do all of the admin, they will do all of the HR, all the safeguarding, all of the onboarding interviews as well, and they cover everything that goes on on the course. They sort of run it with us in the background doing our bit as well. So personally, I think it's pretty good value for money, but we are evaluating all of this as we go along as well, so we can produce the stats for future funders. So I hope that sort of answers the question for you, Brian. Returning to the news now, and employees of Securitas UK's Electronic Security and Security Solutions divisions have recently been given priority access to a set of newly developed security system design courses thanks to a partnership arrangement forged with leading security training provider Skills for Security. Delivered through a customised virtual training portal, the courses enable Securitas employees of all levels of experience to enhance their knowledge of the latest British and European standards when it comes to the design of electronic security systems, including video surveillance, intruder detection, fire detection and access control. Initially, at least, access to the new courses is being offered to all client-facing employees of Securitas's electronic security and solutions business units. The individuals involved range from business development managers, system designers and engineers, through to technical support and project teams. Support staff will also be given the opportunity to improve their understanding of the industry in due course. At the centre of the partnership are Arthur Agnew, Head of Electronic Security at Securitas UK, and David Scott, the Managing Director of Skills for Security. Speaking about the launch of the new training courses, Agnew explained that Securitas UK, we ensure that our 9,000 members of staff have access to a huge variance of knowledge through our in-house learning management system. Adding skills for security to our portfolio of training modules strengthens our aim of having the best trained staff in the industry and supports our ambitions for the electronic security and security solutions business divisions. Agnew went on to comment, continued investment in our people is at the very heart of this strategy. Their knowledge of ever advancing security technology is vitally important to our clients. By ensuring consistent understanding and implementation of the latest security standards across the team, we can help make the world a safer place for our clients. Also commenting on the close collaboration between Skills for Security and Securitas, David Scott observed, Securitas was the perfect partner for us to trial our new set of electronic security design courses among its specialist staff. Securitas is a British Security Industry Association member company, and this type of arrangement is one of the many BSI membership benefits we're proud to offer. Scott added, We identified a gap in the market and have worked closely with Arthur and his team to gather valuable feedback and ensure the courses are fit for purpose and ready for a nationwide rollout. With our full 
full focus on enhancing the skills of individuals resident right across the security industry. Skills for Security is excited that Securitas and its employees are leading the way with this initiative. Skills for Security is a wholly owned subsidiary of the BSIA and the largest UK provider when it comes to the delivery of fire and security focused training, priding itself in offering flexible and accessible training provision to ensure there are no barriers to learning. In the last two years, Skills for Security has invested in its infrastructure and staffing to ensure that the highest quality of training is guaranteed. Over 250 apprentices are now enrolled in its apprenticeship programme, which is run from centres in Warrington, Birmingham, Oxford and Southport. In parallel with this news, Securitas has also launched a major update to its global brand identity and positioning. Underpinned by the strapline See a Different World, the new branding is designed to highlight the company's human and progressive approach towards security, as well as the positive impact of its innovation and technology. It also includes the first major update of the well-known Securitas logo since 1972. Securitas's new logo delivers an original tone of voice and visual identity, in tandem with a positive and proactive storytelling agenda. It will be visible on the company's uniforms, vehicles, equipment and facilities, as well as its digital tools and online channels. The brand is presently being rolled out gradually across the company's worldwide operations. The tagline See a Different World emphasises the expertise and diversity of Securitas's people, as well as the innovativeness and relevance of its offerings. It's deliberately intended to enable Securitas to engage in conversations with a wider range of stakeholders. Magnus Olkvist, President and CEO of Securitas, commented, Our new brand shows the world who we are and where we're going. It builds on Securitas's proud heritage and our core values of integrity, vigilance and helpfulness, while also focusing on our unique people and high-impact technology. Olkvist continued, We work with many of the world's most recognisable companies and our new identity makes it clear how we can help create a more sustainable and inclusive future together with our clients and partners. It will open even more doors for our business and accelerate our strategy execution. Sean Kennedy, country president of Securitas UK, added, At a UK level, this is an exciting opportunity to differentiate ourselves as a world-leading organisation, showing our commitment to the future with a significant step change and approach. We aim to transform the security industry here in the UK, and our new brand identity and positioning are key steps in our strategy for progressive business growth in 2021 and beyond. In the UK, Securitas presently employs around 9,000 members of staff, with 355,000 employees globally serving more than 150,000 clients across 48 markets. The company is now pushing ahead with digital transformation through investing in data-driven tools and by interacting with clients in numerous ways. Indeed, the business aims to double its sales of electronic security and security solutions by 2023. NW Security has just launched its management report entitled Preparing for the Next Generation of CCTV Systems. The report brings together all of the results from an England-wide market research study conducted by the company and involving medium and large-sized businesses running CCTV systems. The 36-page report reveals that England is poised to become an early and rapid adopter of cloud CCTV, exploring in some detail precisely why 58% of those firms captured in the survey of CCTV system users are planning to migrate their existing surveillance systems to the cloud by September. September of this year. Among private sector businesses, more than two-thirds of CCTV end-users are actively considering the migration of their video systems to the cloud. One of the key reasons for the strong appetite for cloud CCTV migration is that, although the UK was late in moving to network video from traditional analogue-based CCTV because of its widespread adoption of CCTV more than 25 years ago, the CCTV to network video tipping point has finally been reached across all sectors. The study finds that 61% of England-based medium and large-sized businesses now operate at network video 
monitoring systems rather than traditional analog-based CCTV. NW Securities report also plots the increase in demand for cloud-based CCTV as part of the wider acceleration of cloud migration plans in response to COVID-19. The global pandemic has created a rapid increase in demand for access to corporate IT applications and management information systems on a remote basis, as so many people have necessarily spent most of their working weeks operating away from the traditional workplace. Cloud CCTV demand certainly fits with wider cloud migration plans accelerated in response to COVID-19. Some 42% of all medium and large-sized businesses admitted that their cloud migration plans are being accelerated in 2020 to 2021 because of COVID-19. A further 34% have increased their budgets to put more IT services and applications into the cloud following the outbreak of the pandemic. 76% of all firms that completed NW Securities online survey have confirmed they had accelerated cloud migration plans as a result of the pandemic. Perhaps one of the more surprising findings is the fact that one-third of all businesses' CCTV systems captured in NW Securities study are still run by in-house security or FM departments. However, now that more CCTV systems are networked than not, and cloud CCTV migration is being actively considered by over half of organisations this year, NW Security believes that IT departments will end up in charge of more than a quarter of video monitoring systems within the next couple of years. In the report, Frank Crowell, Managing Director of NW Security, comments, Many IT managers are being forced to take a deeper interest in CCTV systems now that the technology and security installer partner capability is available to upgrade and improve surveillance operations, potentially moving them up into the cloud and exploring artificial intelligence-driven video analytics capabilities, which will be supplied as standard in the next generation of CCTV systems. Somewhat surprisingly, NW Security study reveals that only 10% of today's surveillance systems are supported by an external CCTV or network video specialist installer. Yet, with so much new technology coming in so quickly and the pressure to migrate video monitoring into the cloud growing, deeper partnerships with external experts harbouring combined pools of IT networking, cloud migration and professional security expertise are likely to gain ground. Confirming first-hand experience of this partnership approach, Crowell observed, we're seeing more businesses looking for help from expert partners when it comes to the improvement and optimization of CCTV systems to ensure those businesses are receiving optimal value from their existing solutions. NW Security firmly believes that the CCTV market is undergoing fundamental change and plans to investigate the implications of that change in a second study to be conducted later this year. Our second guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Steve Howarth, CEO at the Teleware Group and vMotion Interactive. The holder of Bachelor of Science and Master of Science degrees from the University of Teesside, Steve served as an account director at Workplace Systems for three years before moving to land to mobile in March 2002 to become the director of a new business startup in the mobile sector. Late December 2002 witnessed Steve joining Teleware and realised key involvement in creating the company's hosted services division. He became CEO of the communications technology business in 2007. For its part, vMotion is a specialist in the field of live, real-time video compression and transmission over distributed networks. During our podcast interview, Steve focuses on the benefits to be realised from the live streaming of security video and also outlines the various plans for vMotion as a business across the next five years. What evolution and future trends is vMotion seeing in the security and surveillance market at the moment, Steve? Yeah, so at vMotion, we're experiencing a move to more and more mobile and rapidly deployed surveillance cameras for flexibility, but also to help cut costs and adhere to increasing regulations. There's also growing use of artificial intelligence to get more value from deployed assets, as well as saving time on how that video is handled. Um, Real-time analytics and improvements in camera technologies are driving requirements for higher resolution video. And finally, increased use of unmanned vehicles. So 
be that drones, robots, or any unmanned vehicle where having remote visibility is required. What are the benefits to be realised from live streaming security video? Well, the ability to locate cameras in any area of specific interest, be that for temporary deployment in crime hotspots, drug observation, persistent vandalism, fly-tipping neighbourhood nuisances, etc., or permanent deployments where beyond the economical reach of existing CCTV, so traffic monitoring or new infrastructure, for example, and being able to react and manage to events as they unfold in real time. Also being able to maximise surveillance efficiency, so rather than missing events or having to review what happened later, by making sure that you capture the most important images as soon as they happen means less time is needed to have assets tied up in the field. Also bringing more expertise into live situations as they unfold and proactively improve uh, the outcomes which can deliver better public safety or better productivity by getting things done faster. And finally, having the ability to control cameras remotely and track targets requires real-time visibility to capture incidents that may otherwise have been missed. So if you miss that important moment because the camera's pointing in the wrong direction, that could mean having to deploy people and equipment for much longer periods than may otherwise be necessary. And focusing on the business itself now, Steve, which market sectors have been the most robust for V-Motion during the pandemic? Well, our public sector business has remained really robust once the initial hiatus had calmed down. We've, we've got a lot of councils, emergency services, government agencies and military all relying on V-Motion technology and they have all been extremely busy throughout this period. And several decisions were delayed a bit initially, but we've seen an uptick to all activity again this year. The private sector projects have been a bit more mixed, as you can imagine, but many are starting to look at new ways to be more efficient and flexible moving forward. So a good example would be something like transport, which is uh, has, has been affected in different ways. You've got the kind of the public transport where it's been less busy with a lot less people traveling, a lot less passengers, uh, but goods and services have been moved more than ever before and transported. So uh, yeah, it's a real mixed bag in, in that respect, but all of them can benefit from the ability to live stream from moving vehicles. So as one, one picks up and another slows down, seem to benefit from either end. In your marketing communications, you describe Vmotion as a company that offers more video and less bandwidth. Can you please expand on what you mean by that statement, Steve? Yeah, sure. The uh, the V-Motion technology is hugely efficient in terms of the amount of data it requ requires to send video. We also adapt to the variations in the available network bandwidth and can also stream video only when required rather than just stream continually. So because of that, we're just so efficient and flexible, then our customers get better resolutions, a lot lower latency, and greater reliability of image whilst using less data, which is why it's so good for using over mobile networks or, or across satellite links. And the business is bringing a lot of new products to market, Steve. What's your vision for the next, say, five years? Well, we want to make live video streaming solutions easier to deploy and use by removing the need for wired networks and improving the quality and value of that video whether it's by building up our streaming technology into more cameras or creating smaller, lighter, more powerful encoders to sit alongside any camera, 
or by running as software or mobile devices will make our technology more broadly available and easily accessible. We'll continue to integrate into more third-party man uh, video management software solutions, as well as create better workflows for new use cases. It just should be easier to capture the images and gather the intelligence that you need to make faster, more informed decisions and drive better outcomes. And finally, could you sum up the key benefits of vMotion's wireless video streaming products for us? Using vMotion's range of encoders, customers can live stream and control high quality, low latency video from surveillance cameras anywhere without the need for wired infrastructure, which means that they can react immediately to events and gather visual intelligence faster, easier and more flexibility than ever before. And that flexibility results in savings in both time and money. So we, we make sure that you capture the images that matter most to you. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Paul Barnard from the Security Institute and also Steve Howarth of Motion for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.securitymattersmagazine.com where you can access our podcasts and also read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can view our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our very popular weekly e-news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag securitypod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. Please do like and share the podcast content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.